Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Freeway Phantom is available each week on Wednesdays. To hear each episode ad-free and one week early, check out Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com. You're listening to Freeway Phantom, a production of iHeartRadio, Tenderfoot TV, and Black Bar Mitzvah. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, Black Bar Mitzvah, or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Well, you never know what to expect. To expect the unexpected, I guess. I mean, you never know what time you're going to be called out for an assignment. It could be during the day. It could be in the middle of the night. Typically, if you're working day shift or second shift, you would just go ahead and work whatever's on your caseload. But I remember getting a call. It was towards morning. It came over as what we call the Signal 781. That was a a death. It was a warm morning, and it was pretty dry. When I got there, I guess there was a crowd starting to come out. Arriving on a scene, I was directed to where this child was uh, laying on the side of the road and just making mere observations, whatever I could detect at the scene, which wasn't very much at the time. It appeared that she was probably either dragged out of the car or thrown out of the car. And I just called our ID section and they responded and did what they do. Typically taking pictures and if there's anything else, at this area, I mean, there was no fingerprints to be taken or anything like that. Look for tire tracks. So there was really nothing to look for except the deceased person. Everything happened so quick and, and just the, the type of crime it was and the place where it happened and everything. I, I'm sure this happened someplace else, but she was merely dumped in that area. Another 100 feet, it probably would have been in D.C. and I wouldn't have had any involvement at all. The homicide detectives termed the cases the little girl cases. This child was uh, laying on the side of the road. I wouldn't go no way. I wouldn't come out my house. Those first five murders should have been a huge warning bell for the police. We just want to know what happened. This person must have saw that they were thinking that maybe it's just one person. And he says, "Uh uh-uh, they need to know. This is me. I thought that they would catch him. I thought it was just a matter of time. I'm Celeste Headley, and this is Freeway Phantom.
The Freeway Phantom had already claimed two victims, Carol Spinks and Darlinia Johnson. Although Carol and Darlinia's bodies were dumped 15 feet from each other and were killed the same way, law enforcement still hadn't linked the two murders. They'd asked a potential suspect in Darlinia's death if he knew Carol Spinks. He didn't. So the two murders were still being treated as individual cases. But on July 27, 1971, eight days after Darlinia's decomposed body was found, the Freeway Phantom's third victim would be discovered. I remember she, how she was clad. I remember how she was dressed. I remember she had some uh, pink uh, rollers in her hair. And she had a, just a little outfit on, a little top. But it, was, it seems to me it was a matching outfit. There wasn't really that much to see there. As far as she was concerned, I just wrapped her hands in baggies and um, called for the coroner to go ahead and transport her, or it was an ambulance, I should say. This is retired detective Hilary Zukalowski, who we heard from at the top of this episode. He was one of the first to arrive at the crime scene. We weren't there very long because there really wasn't much evidence to gather. Maybe an hour. I don't think they shut down the roads or anything like that because the manner of the way she was dumped on the side of the road. Brenda Crockett was four and a half feet tall and weighed only 75 pounds. She was the youngest victim of the Freeway Phantom. And like Carol Spinks and Darlinia Johnson, she was discovered right off a busy highway. She was a child of God. She loved church. She would go in the refrigerator and eat raw bacon. But, you know, the pigs were better back then. (laughs) She had a dimple up here in in her cheek. She loved bacon and she loved the Lord at 10 years old. But I do remember that I looked up to her, that she she was cute. <laughs> My name is Bertha Crockett, and I am the youngest sibling of my family. Brenda was my oldest sister. She was um, four years older. I have a twin brother who is deceased now, and we had an older brother. We lived on 12th Place. It was a beautiful community, to be honest. As a child, we did everything. We had the fire hydrants out in the summertime. We had arts and craft. We had a lot going on because one of the uh, gentlemen that lived in the area, he worked for the Department of Recs. So he brought all of this activity to our street. And we was like like a one-way street. Brenda lived with her family in Northwest Washington, D.C., which was across town from the first two murders. Like the neighborhoods where Carol Spinks and Darlene Johnson lived, it was tight-knit. I briefly visited her neighborhood and found where Brenda's house used to be. So we're standing in front of the house where Brenda Crockett lived. She would have stepped down this step uh, to leave her house for the last time. We see again this quiet, I would call it a sweet residential street. Um, and she walked just a few blocks. The blocks, it's five blocks, but the blocks here are quite small. This is not a New York block. And she walked just a short way to the Safeway and bought what she needed to buy and never came home again. How someone can snatch a little girl off the street like that. I mean, this is not like where Carol Spinks and Darlinia were living. We do not see aunties on the porch, but that could also be because the, the neighborhood is obviously flipped over. This is not a majority black neighborhood anymore. 
still. Leading up to Brenda's murder, fear hadn't infiltrated this community. It could be that Carol and Darlinia's murders hadn't been connected, or that they happened too far away for anyone here to notice. Whatever the reason, people here had yet to realize that there was a killer targeting young girls. If they had, things might have gone differently. It was neighborhood movie night on Main Street when Brenda headed to the store. All the kids in the neighborhood could watch movies on the screen. So in the summertime, you remember it was daylight until about 9 o'clock p.m. So my mom, my sister being older, the the store that she went to was um, literally two blocks around the corner and two blocks down the street. And because she didn't come back by the time it was turning dark, my mom went looking for her because we were getting ready to watch the movies on, on the big screen. Brenda wore a white and blue plaid halter top with matching shorts and had pink rollers in her freshly pressed hair. A witness said Brenda had been barefoot. She was headed to buy food for Ringo, Rex, and Romeo, the family's three dogs, along with bread and typing paper. When my sister didn't return from the grocery store, my mom didn't realize that no one had went with her. And so after she didn't come back, because it should have been literally a half hour, 45 minutes, my mom went looking for her, and she didn't find her. My sister didn't return. Here's what Retha Crockett, Brenda's mother, told the police about the night Brenda went missing, as read by a voice actor. I sent my daughter to People's Drug Store to get typing paper. Also to the Safeway store located at 14th and U Streets Northwest to get some dog food. This was about 8 o'clock. After a while, she didn't return, so I looked at the door for her. I thought she went to the store with her brother and sister and a friend like she always does. I went outside and it was starting to get dark. I found my other two children, Benjamin and Bertha, and asked them if they had seen Brenda and they said no. All three of us walked the corner of 13th and W Streets to look for her. I told Benjamin to return to the house to lock the door, and when he didn't return, I sent Bertha to get him. She came back and said he was going to stay and watch the street movie. She said, he don't want to go, Mama. Can I stay too? So I said yes. I walked down to the Safeway, and it was closed, and there were some boys sitting outside. I went back home to see if she there, but she wasn't. I then asked my neighbor, Mr. Bundy, if he had seen her, and he said no. I walked back to 14th Street where I seen a police car and asked them what to do when your daughter goes missing. They told me to stand on the corner, that they were out of their area, and that they would have another policeman come and take a missing person report. While I was standing there, I see Mr. Bundy walking out 7th Street, so I ran across the street thinking she had come home. Mr. Bundy said she was not home, but she called. At around 9.20 that night, the phone at Brenda's house rang, and Bertha answered. I'm in Virginia in a white man's house. The white man put me in the car and carried me over to his house. Did my mother see me? I'm seven years old. I remember it like it was yesterday. So my sister was 10 years old. She was old enough and wise enough to remember our home number at that time. She called home and she said that somebody had picked her up and, and took her to Virginia. And they were going to send her home in a cab. And I answered the phone the first time. I'm too young to even understand what's really going on. So that call went out, and then the next call came in. My mom's fiancé at the time, who became my mom's husband, 
answered the next call. And he said, well, Brenda, if you tell me where you are, I'll come and get you. She says, I'm in Virginia. This man picked me up and took me to Virginia. And he's going to put me in a cab and send me home. She's 10 years old. At the same time, my mom went looking for her. And she was asking my stepfather, me or whoever at that time, did my mom see me, which led us to believe that whoever captured her had her in a vehicle or some sort and saw my mom looking for her. My thought is that mama is out looking for you. Where are you? That's my thought then. Even now to this day, I look at the scenario of where from D.C., from where we grew up, to Maryland, to Virginia, because like we grew up at 12th Street Northwest. And then I I work at 12th Street Southwest. And then right around the corner, you just hit that bridge and you're at Virginia. So I'm like, was she really familiar with where she was going? Did she see a sign that said she was going to Virginia? It's like all kinds of questions in my head. I got the impression that she was a little frightened and that she was like just thinking that Whoever it was was going to put her in a cab and send her back home. She said, I'm in Virginia, and he's going to put me in a cab and send me back home. This was new. This was a complete change from the Freeway Phantom's M.O. Although there had been reports of him calling the families of the first two victims, this is the only confirmed contact. What makes this even more strange is that Brenda didn't call once, but twice. Theodore Caldwell was Raitha's fiancé. In his statement, Caldwell said he met Bertha coming up the street. This was right after Brenda had called the first time. So Caldwell was aware Brenda had said a white man took her to Virginia. When Brenda called again, around 9.45, Caldwell picked up the receiver. This is a voice actor reading his statement. Brenda said, Mr. Ted, I said, yes, Brenda. Where are you at? She said, I'm in Virginia in a white man's house. I asked how she got over there. She said the white man put her in the car and carried her over to his house. I asked her, is there anyone there besides you and the man? She said no. I told her, tell him to come to the phone and tell me where you're at and I'll come pick you up. And she said, did my mother see me? I said no. How could she see you when you're in Virginia? I asked her again, tell the man to come to the phone. I heard someone walk in heaven. She said, really low, I'll see you, and someone just cut the phone. There's no definite reason why Brenda went to the store alone that night. Bertha thinks it could be because it was only two blocks from where they lived at the time, and the fact it didn't get dark until 9 p.m. But there was another person to see Brenda before she disappeared. Here's how one investigator described their interview with a witness named Paulette Johnson. Mrs. Johnson was asked if she could recall the night of July 28, 1971, and the incident involving Brenda Faye Crockett. Mrs. Johnson stated she was well aware of that evening and the night, and that she had become acquainted with the victim, Brenda Crockett, prior to her abduction on that night. Mrs. Johnson stated that at approximately 8.45 to 9 p.m. on the night of July 28, 1971, she was walking from the corner of 14th and U Street, northwest, heading south on the east side of 14th Street near the Safeway store. Just as she approached the Safeway store, Brenda Crockett walked around beside her and passed just in front of her, heading toward the door of the Safeway store. 
Mrs. Johnson stated she knew Brenda Crockett by sight because the Crockett girl's father works for one of her boyfriends, and she recalled that Brenda had been to her daughter's birthday party a few days before this incident. Mrs. Johnson stated that it was her opinion that Brenda Crockett could not have been taken from in front of the Safeway store by force without someone seeing and observing the incident. She stated that as she turned the corner on Wallach Place, she lost sight of the Crockett girl, and shortly thereafter, when she returned, she did not see her in front of the store. She stated that the time elapsing after she last saw the Crockett girl and when she returned to in front of the Safeway store was approximately five minutes. If Mrs. Johnson's timing was accurate, this means Brenda was kidnapped within a five-minute window. This means Mrs. Johnson could possibly be the last person to see Brenda alive other than the killer. Police questioned Raytha about the abduction. Has your daughter ever told or advised you that men were trying to entice her into a vehicle? No. Did she often go to the store alone? Just the store around the corner, not the Safeway by herself. Is there anyone you suspect? No. Is there anything else you can add to the statement? No. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. As we heard before the break, Brenda called home not once, but twice. Brenda had said that a white man abducted her and that she was in Virginia. This information seemed suspicious, and it raised a lot of questions. Was the killer feeding Brenda lies to tell her family? And why? He was doing a lot of things to deliberately mislead the authorities. This is writer Blaine Pardo, who co-wrote a book about the Freeway Phantom, he says it didn't make sense that a white man would have abducted Brenda, as she claimed over the phone. When we talked with members of the local community, they agreed that a white man would have stood out in the Congress Heights neighborhood, since the area has always been predominantly black. 
anything he had her say, you have to put under a microscope and go, is he trying to throw the trail off in this case? I definitely think he was in terms of Virginia. I don't know for sure on, on his race, though. Very creepy. And if he was, imagine her knowing that she's lying to her family about this. That had to ratchet up her terror level. You know, it's one thing if somebody's holding you and they said, you can tell them we're in Virginia and you're in Virginia. You tell them I'm white because I'm white. But if they're telling you things that you know aren't true, you got to be more scared. That just scares me to think about that. Having Brenda call home was a new M.O. for the Freeway Phantom, and it showed that he was starting to escalate. In fact, it was only eight hours or so after that phone call that Brenda's body was discovered. In the early morning hours of July 28, 1971, Donald Ray Carter began to head home from work. He worked at the Safeway Bakery in Landover, Maryland, but lived in Alexandria, Virginia. While he was trying to hitch a ride, he spotted Brenda's body in Chevrolet, Maryland. Carter had the cab that had stopped for him take him to Joy Donut Shop to call law enforcement and let them know about the body. After law officials were on the scene, the medical examiner declared Brenda's time of death at 6.55 a.m., Brenda was killed and disposed of in less than eight hours. It was really sad when we saw the pictures of her. I was deeply moved because she's laying on her back and her eyes are open looking up. And uh, it's on the curve of a cloverleaf exit. Blaine tells us he spoke with Carter. You know, he said it was the saddest thing because he said she's just laying there. And he said, I just thought maybe she's asleep. Maybe she's not feeling well, something along those lines. And and it turns out that's not the case. What's interesting, too, is you see a trend with this. Her shoes are missing and the killer has taken shoes off several of the victims. That's usually a control mechanism. You know, if you take someone's shoes, it's harder for them to get away or, or flee or whatever. And he may be keeping those things as souvenirs. Also missing from her were some pink hair curlers that she had. We know it was a fairly narrow window of time, so narrow in fact that it almost rules out when you know the geography of DC, DC being kind of wedged between Virginia and Maryland. The time that her body is found versus the phone calls, etc., and when she disappeared, it would have been very difficult for someone to go anywhere but other than right across the border into Virginia, if indeed the killer was there. The thinking that most law enforcement have had is that he had fed her that information to deliberately mislead the authorities. We just don't know for sure, but you know, the concept of a killer taking his victim back and then letting her call home twice is very disturbing. It's just incredibly creepy. The killer placed Brenda's body along the Prince George's County, Maryland line. Here's how the police report describes the scene. The body was viewed by this detective, and it was observed that she was clad in a blue and white halter, matching shorts, white cotton underpants, and around her neck was an orchid-colored silk scarf, knotted, and a greenish-colored quarter-inch cord attached to which was a silver house key. The body was rigor, and no visible trauma was present. The deceased was laying approximately five feet six inches from the curbside, flat on her back with her arms outstretched, 
After the body was removed, it was noted that the ground was extremely dry under the deceased. However, around the body was wet. The orchid scarf was new. Brenda hadn't been wearing it when she left for Safeway. And this further added to the theory that the freeway phantom was redressing the girls. Brenda's body was taken to the morgue at Prince George's County Hospital. This is her autopsy report. Cause of death was ruled to be ligature and manual strangulation. She had been vaginally raped, and there were ring-like contusions around her nipples, suggesting they had been bitten. There was a small contusion in the left temple region of her scalp. She was fully clothed with the exception of her shoes. It was noted, no soil on her feet. On her head were pink plastic hair curlers, several of which were missing. A few small hairs of negroid origin were found on the palm of her right hand, but were too small for any sort of comparison. Synthetic black textile fibers were recovered from her scarf. Green synthetic fibers were also recovered from her blouse, shorts, and panties. Blood mixed with semen was found in the crotch of her panties, but could not be conclusively grouped. Brenda's case is different from Carol and Darlinia's in two major ways. One is the time period between capture and killing. Carol was kept alive and even fed for about a week. Authorities weren't able to determine an exact time of Darlinia's death due to the decomposition of her body when she was found. However, they did confirm that it was a shorter interval than the previous murder. The second difference, as we've mentioned, are the phone calls. But outside of that, the similarities remain how the girls were killed, the killer's dump site, and the washed feet. Although Brenda had been barefoot, her feet had still been washed. But there's another detail in Brenda Crockett's case that wasn't initially noticed. This is Romaine Jenkins, the retired Metropolitan Police Department sergeant who investigated the Freeway Phantom cases. We visited her at her home. What do you think of her hair? Her hair's been washed. Thank you very much. See, men didn't notice that. I noticed that. And me also, oh, that hair's been washed in water somewhere. Yeah. See? Look how tied up it is. And, and, and her sister said their hair had just been done. They had, had just been pressed and curled and put on rollers. And look at it now. She's been in water. Yeah. But the, but the guys didn't notice that. They didn't know. I, I knew that when I saw that picture. Here's what Bertha Crockett has to say about her sister's hair being wet. When they found her, I think her hair was wet with the rollers in it. If that's the case, I think he would have tried to remove evidence. If you're going to wash your victims, you're remove, trying to remove evidence. And you know, as black women, we don't do wet hair. I can't even remember my hair back then, but I have one picture of her at Easter, and her hair was cute. So I guess we would have had to been pressing, pressing curl back then. In the 70s, it meant shampoo, blow dry, iron curl on the stove, and press and roll up with rollers. None of this, uh, I don't remember uh, curling irons. I don't remember uh Flat irons, I don't remember any of that. It'd just be you press it with the straightening comb on the stove and you roll it up with some grease. <laughs> Reports also showed the negroid head hairs in Brenda's right palm were not hers. 
And for the third time now, green rayon fibers were found on the body. Here's Blaine Pardo again. So we now know for sure she's linked to Carol Spinks. So at that point, law enforcement knows they've got somebody who's doing this. And more importantly, those fibers are showing up under their clothing. If you think about it from from a perspective of what's happening, if you get your victim to disrobe because you're going to sexually assault them or you disrobe them, if you're putting their clothes on the source of those fibers, you're still kind of laying clothes on, let's say it was a green blanket on a bed and you're throwing the clothes on there, the fibers are still going to be on the outside of the clothing. These things are showing up inside. And, you know, it's a real scary concept of what's happening here as to how they're picking these fibers up and from what. The Maryland Police Department issued a reward for any information on the case. And while the police were searching for the killer, Bertha said the community changed. After that, the community became really uh, strict. Like, I was in a short block. I mean, I'm, I'm talking like maybe a quarter mile. Not even that. When the lights came on, you better be in front of your home to go in the house. In our neighborhood, the community raised us. So if you did anything wrong, the neighbors told your parents before they even got home. So everything, everybody was watching out for everybody. It was so strict, and it was just what it was after that. And I think I think my sister's death is what sparked such a tight knit um, a lookout for everybody on that block. And on the next blocks, I, I, I was on 12th place, so we had 12th Street on the next block, and we had 13th Street. So we just kept a tight knit community after that. It was so sad, though, because I didn't understand the restrictions that I had on me as a little child, but my mother didn't want anything to happen to me either. Here's an excerpt from the book The Mystery of the Freeway Phantom by Wilma Harper. The death of Brenda had a traumatic effect on the neighborhood where she lived. The residents said the area would never be the same. In contrast to the usual crowds of frolicking youngsters, Only a few children were playing ball on the block after Brenda's body was found. An eight-year-old boy refused to go to the store for his mother because he was afraid he would be kidnapped. Neighbors and friends along 12th Place, which is just behind Cardoza High School, described Brenda as a bright fifth-grade student at nearby Harrison Elementary School. Mrs. Eva Artist, a neighbor who cared for the children when their mother was at work, said, We usually have lots of games going on the street, but nobody's been acting right today. I think everyone is disturbed. But Bertha Crockett says the death of her sister had an even bigger impact on her immediate family. I know it took a lot on my mom, though. I, I saw my mom just depreciate from that, but she um, just wasn't herself anymore. It's like life went out of her. And so then that's when you that's when you you say, well, why wasn't it me? Why would God take that angel? Because she had it going on way better than me. 
even at seven years old, you want to think that, like, I know her. I knew her. I didn't, you know what I'm saying? I didn't, I wasn't on her level because she had her own girlfriend, set of friends at 10 years old. I she had a whole school of girlfriends that loved her. I went to the cemetery about a month ago, but I could not find her. And I couldn't, my mom is in the same place, the same cemetery, but I couldn't. So I would have to literally go back and ask them to show me the plots because it's been 50 years to show me where my sister, I know she's located in Hilltop Garden of Roses. That's the um, name of the place where they, you know, have her laid to rest. But my mom is in the same place. My mom is under a big tree, but yeah. It's sad that, you know, having a sister that I really didn't get to know because she got taken away at such a young age, growing up without a sister. And then, like, in my early 20s, I lost my mom. So I've been out here forever. And so some things just bring emotion back. While Bertha and her family were grieving Brenda's death, the police had begun to suspect that her murder might be connected to Carol and Derlinia. And months later, those suspicions were finally confirmed when another girl was found dead. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Sixteen-year-old Stephen James Potopia was watching TV when he decided to go visit his friend Chuck. On his way to Chuck's house, he passed by a broken-down Pontiac on the shoulder of Pennsylvania Avenue, near a sign that said, Upper Harboro 12. Stephen said he heard a man holler a girl's name and told her to cut the lights on. He described the woman as young and white, no older than 19 or 20. The man was also white and well-dressed, with brownish blonde hair, glasses, 
and about five foot ten inches. Stephen said he noticed the guy was staring at him. So when Stephen was about 20 feet from the car, he jumped the bank to cut across the cemetery to Chuck's house. When he got there, nobody was home. So Stephen decided to head back to his house. This next part is an excerpt from Stephen's statement to the police. I then left and headed home the identical way I came. As I was walking up Pennsylvania Avenue toward Maryland, I started walking backwards, trying to thumb, hitchhike. I noticed a box sitting off the shoulder on the grass. I walked over to the box and saw glass in it. I turned and saw something in the grass, but right then, I didn't know what it was. I walked up to it, but I didn't know if it was a man or a girl. I stood there a couple seconds to see if it would move. I took my right foot and kicked it two or three times, and the body seemed to wiggle. I stood there a couple seconds and then felt the body under the ribs to see if the heart was beating. The body felt cold, and then something hit me. Maybe it was dead. Stephen had found the body of 12-year-old Nina Moshe Yates, a sixth grader at Kelly Miller Junior High. She was a well-behaved, quiet child, and now she was the fourth victim of the freeway phantom. Nina Moshe lived with her father and stepmother in the Benning Heights neighborhood in southeast Washington, D.C. Benning Heights is about six miles from Congress Heights, a completely different area on the other side of D.C. from the first three murders. It was Friday, October 1st, 1971. Nina Moshe's stepmother had just given birth and was at the hospital with Nina's dad. About 7 p.m., Nina Moshe was given $5 and sent to Safeway to buy sugar, flour, and paper plates. The grocery store was located at 4801 Benning Road Southeast. That's the same road Nina Moshe lived on. Although the store was only about a block away, her father had instructed her not to talk to strangers. According to witnesses, Nina Moshe made it to the grocery store, but she never made it back. Here's Victoria Hester, who co-wrote a book about the Freeway Phantom with her father, Blaine Pardo. We know that for sure she was at the Safeway because the store manager confirmed. On October 1st, it would have been pretty dark at that time. It was normal to go down the street to a Safeway at 9 o'clock at night in D.C. at that time. It wasn't until the next day, October 2nd, that a Safeway employee found the items Nina Moshe had purchased. We know wherever she went, she was either forcibly taken only because the bag of sugar that she had bought from Safeway was found in the parking lot of Safeway. So she didn't get very far. She wouldn't have left that bag of sugar if she was getting a ride home or getting a ride to somewhere else by someone driving by. She would have taken that with her, which kind of leads us to believe it was forcibly. But at the same time, with it being a well-lit parking lot, she would have screamed. She would have made some sort of noise and a area if she was being forcibly taken. So it gets kind of tricky in that sense. Because of her age too, she was 12. Was she easy to convince to get in a vehicle? Just to me, it makes it look forcible since her bag of groceries that she went out to get was left behind. Another important thing about it was her body was found dry on wet grass. So we know she wasn't killed where she was dumped and she wasn't killed outside, or she would have been wet. She was wearing her clothes that she was wearing when she disappeared. The cause of death was known to be strangulation, and she was sexually assaulted. She also had fingernail marks on her neck, 
So either from being strangled or trying to fight back and getting marks on her neck. Nina Moshe was found in cut-off brown shorts, a white sweatshirt with green lettering that spelled Randall Highland Hornets, and white Zips tennis shoes. Autopsy reports indicated her esophagus was crushed. Not only did Nina Moshe have more wounds than previous victims, but the killer had accelerated his timeline. She'd left home around 7 p.m., and her body was found around 9.15 p.m. This means she was taken murdered and disposed of in roughly two hours. Like the others, green fibers were found on the body. Negroid hairs from a person's head were on her panties, brassiere, sweatshirt, cut-off jean shorts, and shoes. At the time of her disappearance, Nina Moshe was wearing a sanitary napkin. Semen was found in that napkin. Additionally, $2.91 and a grocery list were found in her pocket, along with two house keys attached to a string. Near her body were several items, including a single woman's loafer. Police considered the loafer was dragged out of the vehicle with Nina Moshe's body because it was also dry. Remember, Darlenia Johnson was missing loafers when she was found. There were also drag marks from Nina Moshe's heels in the wet dirt. The police report noted that tire tracks created by a small vehicle were found near the body and had been photographed. Later, another witness told police they'd seen Nina Moshe get into a blue Volkswagen with a yellow stripe down the side, headed in the direction of the Safeway. The witness assumed it was her mom, since she drove a similar car. Kind of sent a wild goose chase on the Volkswagen issue with the witness thinking that they saw her get into a Volkswagen. It kind of created this, well, now we got to find this car that happens to be one of the most popular cars right now. And it really went nowhere. It's kind of unfortunate. It's nice that the witness thought they saw something, but at the same time, it created a lot of misleading information about who they were looking for. And it wasted a lot of police time running all these plates and trying to identify all these cars. Later, investigators interviewed Stephen again. This time, he added to his statement. The following is from that report. He advised he furnished what he thought was the full facts of what he had seen that evening. But he has since recalled he had seen another car in the vicinity of where he discovered the body. Potopia related after he left his residence and turned east toward Washington, D.C. on Pennsylvania Avenue in the right-hand lane, he observed a Volkswagen in the westbound lane. This Volkswagen pulled off onto the side of the road and parked about 25 feet west of where Potopia discovered the body. Potopia looked back after he had seen the car park and observed two men get out of the Volkswagen, a white from the driver's side and a Negro man from the passenger side. The two men walked along the side of the road a short distance and then went down the embankment and he no longer thought anything about it. Potopia then crossed the westerly lane, the median, and then in the westerly lane observed the other car with the hood up, which he had put into the signed statements. The car with the hood up belonged to the young couple we heard earlier. Police were now investigating two sets of individuals. One, a young Caucasian couple. The other, a black man and Caucasian man, But this didn't last long. Shortly after the news broke about Nina Moshe Yates, a witness came forward. 
Here's what James Richard Lloyd told police as read by a voice actor. I was with Jay Robinson in his 1971 Pontiac Le Mans, which is brown in color, and we were coming from the Fairfax Village in Washington, D.C. Jay heard a noise coming from the engine, so we stopped along Pennsylvania Avenue just past the big gates to the cemetery. We got out and opened the hood. Jay was trying to find where the noise was coming from. About that time, someone walked past us. I first saw him walking up the road as we pulled off. He was walking toward D.C. While we stopped, I saw two cars stopped along the road in front of us, about 100 yards up the road from us. They were close together, but I don't know what type of cars they were. We got back in our car and drove off. James told police he came to speak with them after Jerry's mother had read about the news. It had been only him and Jerry in the car when they stopped just past the entrance to the cemetery along Pennsylvania Avenue. He said he saw both cars the entire time he and Jerry were pulled over. This was about three to four minutes. James also told police the cars were there when he and Jerry left, and he didn't see anyone or anything else as they drove off. With James's statement, both sets of suspects were ruled out. Authorities were back to square one. There were now four young dead black girls, girls that were from tight-knit neighborhoods, places where the community kept an eye on children, places that were meant to be safe. Yet the police had no leads. Here's Romaine again. Whoever grabbed these young ladies grabbed them right in their own neighborhood. Nina Moshe Yates went to the grocery store in the 4800 block of Benin Road. She's picked up that she, she's grabbed in the 4900 block. And nobody sees anything. All them people out there, I don't care when you go out there. You have East Capitol Street there. It's always people because you're close to the district line. People are doing shopping. She's grabbed at a time when there are lots of people out. Kids are out and nobody sees a thing because he fit in with the community. Nobody was suspicious. What happened to Nina Moshe was also true in the case of Brenda Crockett. Both girls had been snatched in broad daylight. As Romaine has said, it's very likely the killer was somebody from the neighborhood. I asked Bertha Crockett if she had any suspicions about who the killer could be. Back then, we used to have officer friendlies that came to our school and they got to know the kids. That means officers that used to come to your um, school and make sure that the kids feel safe. Like right now, they have patrol officers or officers in the school to make sure kids are not doing the violent stuff that they've been doing lately. But back then, they were called officer friendlies. And they would come to your school and have like little conversations with you. And it always made me feel like an officer friendly was somebody that saw different girls and he selected them. Next time on Freeway Phantom. DC had never had a serial killing before. And so it wasn't something, not that you ever get used to it, but it wasn't something they were familiar with. The fourth body, that brought more people in because where's the body found? You're talking about PG County, right? You're talking about crossing jurisdictional lines. So then here's PG County coming into play. All of these girls were not from runaway families. These girls, they were good families. And if they do investigate, they don't investigate when it comes to black people, you know, unless it's something that's juicy. 
And all of a sudden, the guy, he comes out of the driver's side and he comes around the front of the car and snatches me. There's no emotion on his face, none. Freeway Phantom is a production of iHeartRadio, Tenderfoot TV, and Black Bar Mitzvah. Our host is Celeste Hidley. The show is written by Trevor Young, Jamie Albright, and Celeste Hidley. Executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio include Matt Frederick and Alex Williams with supervising producer Trevor Young. Executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV include Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay with producers Jamie Albright and Tracy Kaplan. Executive producers on behalf of Black Bar Mitzvah include myself, Jay Ellis, and Aaron Bergman with producer Sidney Foos. Lead researcher is Jamie Albright. Artwork by Mr. Soul 216. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Special thanks to the team at UTA, Beck Media and Marketing, and the Nord Group. Tenderfoot TV and iHeartMedia, as well as Black Bar Mitzvah, have increased the reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the Freeway Phantom murders. The previous reward of up to $150,000 offered by the Metropolitan Police Department has been matched. A new total reward of up to $300,000 is now being offered. If you have any information relating to these unsolved crimes, contact the Metropolitan Police Department at area code 202-727-9099. For more information, please visit freeway-phantom.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks for listening. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.